You're listening to Null and Void with Tony Grundy and Andy Callahan, a For the Now media production. Hello and welcome to episode 24 of the Null and Void Sports Podcast. Because we just love bringing you our weekly offering, the time has actually flown by. It's amazing though, 24. My name's Tony Grundy. And mine's Andy Callahan. Andy, you, you've been fantasising about being 007, is that right, this weekend? I, I wouldn't go that far. I mean, I, I did have the, uh, the, the Sunspell Riviera polo shirt on, the Sea Island cotton <laughs> slacks and the fake Omega as I went to uh, watch uh, the film in London this weekend because I've, I've heard they're looking for a new one. So I thought I'd try and get my, uh, my hat into the ring. But sadly, none of the broccolis were there. None of the directors there to notice me. So uh, I think I might have to wait for the next opportunity to, uh, to play 007. But I do like a... A vodka martini, shaken but not stoked. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think they, they've missed out on a big, big opportunity there in every sense of that word. <laughs> so, so what about yourself, Tony? Um, I mean, obviously, it was not so much a stuff of fancies as stuff of nightmares for you this weekend. Well, it, it's nice of you to say so. Um, keep me away from sharp implements, I think, after United's abysmal display against Liverpool. Mind you, has to be said, I've seen that Manchester United team in the past relegated so as the song goes always look on the bright side of life yeah so uh we'll keep our discussion short other than to say i've seen them also lose at home to city 6-1 when fergie was the manager so who knows what will happen everybody's speculating but the definite thing is they were lucky to get none Next subject. <laughs> moving on cr- swiftly. <laughs> moving on swiftly, yeah. T20 cricket, what do you reckon? There's been some great games. I mean, I know we talked in depth last week with Barry about the, sort of the ills and maybe how T20 has taken away or deflected attention from the great test game that we love. But uh, there's been some fantastic matches. England beating West Indies uh, for what was it West Indies were rolled for 55 uh, and that was a great performance West Indians were the previous champions were they yeah, they beat England in the final uh, four or five years ago with the uh, mind you there that was a great over that final over where Brathwaite smacked was it four sixes off Ben Stokes in the final over to snatch victory from the jaws of defeat and a, and a great performance but Scotland qualified for the Super 12 section um unfortunately then got uh quite a heavy defeat yesterday against afghanistan and namibia have made it into the the super 12s and i was reading over the weekend they've only actually got five top level cricket pitches in the whole of namibia and they're in now competing with india with pakistan with england south africa australia it's brilliant yeah and, and something else that's brilliant was ben stokes joining the ashes squad which was, I don't know whether it was planned or otherwise, in the sense they were leaving it open as long as possible. But I think that could make a difference. Does that mean instead of 5-0, which we've been just talking about, in 5-1, I don't know, but Ben Stokes can make a difference, can't he? Yeah, I mean, he, he's a recognised match winner. I mean, if you think back to the last Ashes series here in England, where he absolutely turned around and performed almost a, a beefy-esque heroics at Headingley with um, him hitting 150-odd 
And at the other yeah. end, Jack Leach with the most important one not out that will ever be scored by a cricketer. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, I remember yeah. that. Yeah, and and uh, just switching sports there, the Lionesses at, um, at Wembley only for the second time ever uh, beating Northern Ireland four nil. I think they're actually playing Latvia at this precise moment. As uh, as we're recording, they're two nil up in Latvia. Okay, that's a decent start then. So mm-hmm. all looking good on the World Cup qualifiers there, and and. Um, that a substitute come on. What was her name? Beth uh, la, la, la. came on and scored a hat trick in that game, that 4 0 win. So, yeah, some, some really good stuff there. Uh, what else did we have? Uh, rugby. Um, the, the Premiership was uh, back in action again this weekend. And after last week's Get a Grip, where we were talking about rugby players wearing tights, we did. It happened. Yeah, we said that the first players to do it would be absolutely rinsed. Well, there were four or five. I, I know they were all backs, which is no surprise. Uh, so, uh, But wingers mainly. Um, so, yeah, Max Mallins, they were showing the footage of him scoring four tries as Saracens comprehensively beat Wasps. And there he was running them in, wearing tights under his shorts. So, uh yeah, not not a great look as far as I'm concerned. I think there was a there was a lot of debate on all the social media channels about I think you know the dinosaurs like myself versus the new up and coming players and people yes. saying if you've tried playing on a 4G pitch, then you'll understand. And I thought back to as we talked about last week playing five aside football on some Astro of the early AstroTurf pitches and thought, well, yeah, you've never known a, a carpet burn like that until you've tried mm-hmm. to do a sliding tackle on AstroTurf. And one thing I wanted to mention is an update, and it only happened, uh, I believe, last night it was announced. Brian McDermott, friend of Null and Void, great interviewee of a few weeks ago, and, and brilliant, brilliant coach of Leeds uh, all those years ago, has been appointed head coach of Featherstone. And I sent him a note last night to congratulate him on our behalf, collectively, and said, we'd love to talk to you. He's actually said, definitely, uh, love to do that. Um, be delighted to. He's going to come back to me and look at his diary because clearly he's very busy at the moment. But that could be next week's programme. He's a superb coach, but he's a lovely guy as well. So we'd be delighted to have him on board again. Yeah, and I think Featherstone are really lucky to have someone of that calibre in the role. And you know, I think he can do a great job with them um, and build on what has been historically a solid club but maybe over the last couple of years not quite had the the same levels of success but if anyone can go in and absolutely drive them forwards it'll be Brian yeah I definitely wouldn't like to argue with him whatever he was saying (laughs) (laughs) anyway contacts Uh, your mum's been in contact again hasn't she yeah, yeah. A couple of things she's been in contact with this week. So one, we'd asked people to make their recommendations when Barry was talking last week and he's got the rights to the film of the Derby Great Escape and who could play Wayne Rooney in that film. And uh, mum's suggestion was Quasimodo, which I, I, I think is a bit harsh and a bit I unfair. Think a little harsh. Yeah, yeah. yeah, a bit harsh and a bit unfair on Quasimodo. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, very harsh. All right. And what else was she saying? And she was also saying um, she, she had a query and she was a little bit concerned. She said, we've not heard from Tony's cousin, Rosemary, in quite a while. And she said, is, is she OK? Or, you know, is she uh, of her and Tony had a falling out? So, yeah, she was just asking that it was everything <laughs> well, OK with Rosemary. 
we haven't fallen out until she sent this message, which is, she says, hardly know what to say after yesterday's result. Too upsetting even to make a sarky joke, she said, referring to United's defeat at Old Trafford. That's a message from my former cousin, Rosemary Conover. <laughs> Remember, you can pick your friends, but you can't pick your family. <laughs> I know, absolutely true. Also, Barry Wood, who was our guest speaker last week for the second time, <clears throat> he, he was uh, talking about voting for who should, his own ideas on who should take the place of Wayne Rooney. And he said, actually, Charlton Heston There's only one person. You know, and it, I think it's a bit besotted with, with Rooney because he's called truly the son of God, which I think is a quote from Charlton Heston. But, uh, yeah, he's a bit over the top about it, particularly as they are bottom of the league still. Uh, I, I just think he's getting a bit excited. But there you are. There's another uh, suggestion alongside Quasimodo. I think football does that to us. We can all hope and dream. I mean, you know, at one point I thought Newcastle might actually get their first win of the season this weekend, but sadly wasn't to be. But a draw at Crystal Palace, you know, we're only eight games into the season now, the Premiership season without a win. So, you know, there's there's 30 games still to go. <laughs> I, love, I love it, the optimism. Right. Um, get a grip. Not you, as I said before, but I'm going to have a go at the British Athletics Association, BAA. They're in a bit of a mess. In fact, a lot of a mess. They seem to have gone from crisis to crisis over the last couple of years, maybe even longer. This week, the chief executive, Joanna Coates, has left, resigned, call it what you will. The head of performance, Sarah Symington, ex-top cyclist, has gone back to cycling with only one year, both of them in the job. Now, we knew they had big problems when they came in, but it seems to have got substantially worse. And at the Olympics, that was our worst result for the, a very long time indeed. Do you know how long, Andy? I, I know it was the first time since Atlanta 96 that the athletics yeah. team hadn't 96. picked up a gold medal at all. So, yeah, yeah, definitely one of their worst performances in, what, 25 years. Yeah, uh, and, and now you've got no direction, no key people in, in place in senior management terms. I think because of what you represent, British athletics, which has been so high in people's minds for so long with the Olympics, the message from us quite clearly is get a grip. Yeah, I think, and just on that, looking at the Sarah Symington move, she's, if anything, gone from the frying pan into the fire, to use a cliche, because yeah. uh, UK Cycling are again under fire and investigation. Uh, I think it was back in 2011, there was a, a suspected positive uh, sample for Nandrolone in one of the yeah. riders. And yeah. um, British Cycling, and the, is it UK DA or the UK doping agency and now yeah. basically have just recently um, findings from WADA criticizing them because the UK agency actually let British cycling test their own athletes and send it off to a private lab for testing rather than it being something that was done by the UK DA and uh, under WADA regulations. So although they've said there'll be no sanctions because everyone that was involved in that at the time has moved on, 
from both uh, British Cycling and, and UK ADA. But in terms of that, I think, you know, again, it's after the Shane Sutton situation, after the Bradley Wiggins allegations and everything yeah. and the investigations that have taken place with British Cycling over the last five years. I think, you know, yet again, it's having its name dragged through the mud and the, the sort of linkage with potential doping, although WADA have been at pain to say, you know, no athletes have tested positive since and no findings, but just in terms of, again, those sort of, those allegations around cycling that just seem to have lingered on from the 90s and everything yeah. around the, the Armstrong era. I think just a shame that, you know, for Sarah Simington, who was a great cyclist herself, you know, she whether she's moved to go back into cycling. I think she couldn't have picked a worse time to leave the uh, the the frenzy of British athletics and the, all the challenges they're facing to then go back into UK cycling. So I think, yeah, definitely someone who's facing a lot of challenges, whichever junction she'd taken there. But certainly, I think UK athletics to you know to to lose to lose one senior manager in a year could be classed as unfortunate. To lose both is just careless. Careless, yeah, and and just on a on a final note on get a grip, we've had a few goes at the unvaccinated professional sports people, particularly footballers. My understanding is now at least a single dose. We're up to a eighty-one percent. Is that the right figure, Andy? That was yeah. Jonathan Van Tam was uh, doing some interviews last over the last week, and he said that at least eighty-one percent of all Premier League footballers have had at least one dose. And I think, you know, that's up from, it was under 50% in September. So in, in yeah. just over a month, that's absolutely leapt by 20 plus percent. So hopefully would, we're getting somewhere near a a full house. Yeah. I wouldn't, I wouldn't totally claim that that was because of null and void, but we had a real go at it. And I think three occasions to say how disgraceful that was for professional sports people to take that view. Well, so, if you're if you're not going to claim it, I will. Then I think we can, <laughs> we can say that's all down to null and void. <laughs> yeah, why not? Let's let's be outrageous about it, right? I think it's time for our first guest. What do you reckon? Definitely, I think this is someone I've been looking forward to speaking to since you uh since you lined this up, Tony. It's um it's someone who actually is partly responsible. I'm saying partly responsible, wholly responsible for <laughs> null and void actually existing. Um, yeah, 10, 10 years ago, um, this was a man who was pulling together a speaker team of, of people involved in different sports to talk about how we were using some of the products, the aloe vera products, um, and from the businesses in which we were all involved, and got together a host of speakers in what he termed the A-team of speakers um, to talk about how we were using in different elements. And we obviously at the time decided that we were the greatest act, double act since null and void and the name <laughs> stuck. So yeah. yeah, here we are 10 years later talking again in a completely different format. But um, yeah, our, our guest Peter Wilkinson is someone who's got a great background in a number of different sports, um, athletics, cricket, rugby, and mainly football, uh, but also someone who was a, uh, qualified PE teacher and sports teacher at Loughborough and has since gone on to talk about sports science in a number of different ways and different guises. So great pleasure to introduce to, and welcome to the show, Peter Wilkinson. So, hi, Peter. After eight years, great to yeah, see you. Thank How you are you doing? Thank you very much for that very generous, generous inter, um, introduction. And 
I can't tell you how delighted I am to be talking to both of you because it's a long time since we have done. Good, and I'm good pleased man. to see see you're both busy in the area we both enjoy. Yeah, indeed. It, it's, it's a great place to be for us, so we thought it would be nice to, to welcome you on board, Peter, again. Now, your background, obviously, you were born and brought up in Portugal, weren't you? I was, yes. Yeah, my, father, my father was an engineer and he started off in the Amazon, came back after seven years put, putting sort of transport systems in the Amazon railways. And he was asked if he'd like to go out to another place called Lisbon, where I believe had something like 40 buses. And by the time he retired, there were about 600, fleet of 600, and they were never off the road. So five of us were born out there. Wow. So we grew up being bilingual, basically. But I, I made an early note of at the age of seven, you contracted tuberculosis. Yeah, I did. Um, that was pretty dramatic. It, it, was, it was pretty bad. That was uh, at seven years of age, and all I can remember is coughing up blood, and from then on, it was all downhill. <laughs> Goodness, I mean, I, yeah. I, I, in the note that you sent us, Peter, I, I was reading as well that some of the uh, concoctions that you had to eat and drink to uh, help you back on to the road to recovery sounded pretty grim. They were pretty it? awful. They were beer and raw, raw, raw eggs. egg in beer. Oh. Didn't mind the beer, it was the raw egg. <laughs> <laughs> I think yeah, it was to sort of build me up and strengthen me and give me some protein. And then I had to, um, I, well, I was bedridden for a long time and I had to have two injections a day, one on each cheek. So mm. I began to look as if I had a sieve for a backside. <laughs> but uh, I remember those times well. And uh, I had to be locked up because I was always escaping and jumping out of windows, never to be seen. And, was that um, because you wanted to be outside and active and yeah, playing? Yeah, I always wanted to be out, and it was very hot, and I wasn't meant to be in the heat. So I used to escape and then quite often hitch up with some shepherds. And I can remember having a sort of picking snails and having a snail and salt meal one evening under the moonlight with loads of sheep around me. Like you, like you do, of course. Like you do, yeah. <laughs> and then my parents must have had a hell of a hard time. But um, it, yeah, that was part of the deal, I'm afraid. So yeah, would you class yourself as a bit of a rebel, rebellious? Or was that just as a result? I, yes, of I didn't like being. Um, I didn't like being sort of thought of as a cripple. I sort of uh, it sort of lasted quite a little while that feeling because. When I did start to recover, every time I did something, I ended up being ill afterwards. So even uh, game sessions and teachers would say, oh, you're ill again. So I'd be off school or something like that. So you had so, scarring um, on one of your lungs, didn't you? Yes, I had a collapsed lung. But in those days, the doctor the doctor was fabulous. He, he had his own x-ray machine and everything. So he used to sort of lift me up so I could see the lung. And eventually he lifted me up and said, look, your right lung's expanding. Now go out there and get as fit as you can. And that I must have been about eight, seven, eight, something like that. And that's when my whole psyche sort of changed. And everything I did was geared to getting fitter and fitter and fitter. Which, which would have been music to your ears, I imagine. Well, eventually it was, but 
um, I hadn't sort of got any sort of sporty bents in those days. Uh, it just happened because I was having to get fit. And then as I got fitter, I started doing this and that and found I had some talents in certain areas. And that, it became a bit of an obsession. And, you know, I took up, I had tennis coaching and cricket was not something I played regularly because it wasn't a sort of game that was entrenched in Portugal. It was beginning. We had a um, British sort of club, sports club, and we used to play cricket on uh, matting. And the outfield was pretty rough. So it was a different game of cricket. Of course, Peter, when, with all your illness, you, when you returned to school, as I understand it, you were in the year below because you'd missed out. You know, yes, for you I to was sent up. up north. I would have been about uh, 9, 10 probably by then. Yeah. And I was sent up north to stay with my godmother up in the sort of mountain fresh air. And the, the weirdest thing, because I don't know, things keep popping up now. Um, she worked as a secretary in a uranium mine. And right. she was priding herself having this great big rock on a mantelpiece. And I later found out that was a, a piece of uranium rock. Which is, <laughs> Just so, sitting there on the mantelpiece. Yeah. yeah. Bit of, a bit of radioactivity to help. A bit of... <laughs> Like you do, as we said earlier, yeah, like you do. <laughs> Excellent. So, but you ended up coming to England for a time after that, didn't you? How did that happen? Um, I went back eventually to school and then my parents, who had a friend in Colchester who farmed, they thought it would be a good idea if I went over to England and had a year or two out there on working on the farm and going to a school nearby which I was against, but in those days you did what you were told up to a degree. So that was my first visit to England. I think I was about, I must have been about 11, 12, something like that. And no, more, the, sorry, 13. Old, 13 old Chester, wasn't it? Yes, and I ended up in uh, um, near Colchester. Yeah. And um, I found it all very strange because obviously I didn't know the, the country I came from. Um, but I, I think in my first day at school, I had four fights. <laughs> I, I got picked on and um, those four people became very good friends of mine. They ended up in the rugby squad. They were actually prop forwards. I can remember their names even. Um, so it was just one of those things in playtime, trying to push you about. And I made very good friends with uh, some of the other class who defended me. And then we went from there. So I was introduced to rugby, which I thought was a silly game because I didn't even know which way to throw the ball. <laughs> and I was put in as a hook and I told the games master in so uncertain terms, I would never play this stupid bloody game again because <laughs> I was bruised to death. And he suddenly realised I had some talent with my kicking and that sort of thing. And he swapped me to fly half and I never looked back. That was it. I learned the game very quickly from there. Yeah, it's sink or swim, really, isn't it? In, in that yeah. situation. Yeah. So, but you you did eventually go back to Portugal after that, but that must have been a big thing as early as you, as young as you were, being away from home as long as you were. Yes, yeah, so I was very homesick for a year, and um, 
obviously missed the country, missed my parents, missed friends. Uh, but it made me because um, I trained every day. And, um, you know, I went from hardly being able to walk or go around a track to, I think I ran in the uh, county cross country, came 18th, and I was in the wrong age group. Had I gone in the right age group, I'd have come first and broken a record. So my master <laughs> tried to get me back into that to represent the county and they wouldn't have it. But it was in a way, it uh, served as a very positive effect on my fitness and my mentality. And from then on, I thought, I've cracked it. Um, let's go from here. So, so at the time, were you combining the, the cross country running and the athletics in the summer with football through the other yeah, no, no, the the time, this, this was where I was doing that with rugby. Okay. So I, I actually captained the under-14s and the under-15s um, for those two years I was there because I learned the game pretty quickly. And, and I did find, I did love the game from the position I was playing in. And I also was very lucky in that I had a, a brilliant little scrum half. He really was. And we sort of hit it off very well. And... Um, I think that sort of added to the enjoyment, you know. Mm. Yeah, you were getting getting decent ball rather than scrappy yes, ball. Yes, and, and knowing to do something to do with, with it. it because you're studying the game more and understanding it better and talking to the coach more um, and not getting mauled in the scrum where you didn't want to be, basically. Oh, uh, you see, I, 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 that was the part of the game I loved being there at was the bottom it? of yeah, the Law of the Jungle. <laughs> That I, I mean, I admired the guys, but I just like to see where I was going all the time or what to do. And also, when, when, if I'm honest, I didn't didn't have good enough hands to be a back. All <laughs> uh, right. So when, course, Peter, King, when, when you went sorry. back to Portugal, the, that was when football, you're talking about rugby now, but football uh, really took off for you, didn't it? Well, it did, because we played a lot of football, even at that school, in break time. You know, it, although we played rugby as the main sport, we also played, and I was always keen on football anyway, because I used to support Benfica. And even then, I wanted to... I th it was then that I thought I might be able to think about playing football seriously. And then I went back to Portugal, and I was so damn fit. I mean, really fit that I was doing so much training, playing football, playing tennis at a high level because I was being coached. And um, everything I did was all fitness orientated, basically. And I happened to be spotted and uh, I was asked to go for a trial at a first division club called Bonanensis. <clears throat> and um, I think I was there for about a month. And at the end of the month, well, it wasn't so much the end of the month, one night, in this stadium with a huge squad, I was told I'd be playing for the under-18s on the Sunday, which was a big breakthrough. Uh, unfortunately, that didn't materialise because uh, the following training session, I was told I couldn't play on Sunday because I was the fifth foreigner in a club and they had four full-time professionals who were already playing from Brazil, all sorts of things. So... I was asked to go and see a chap who'd come to see me, rather smartly dressed, in the stadium. And he spotted me and um, he was interested in taking me to his club on loan for a year. So, so even though you've been born in Portugal and grown up there, you were still... No, no, I had a, 
I had a British passport and I was ah. English, you see. So, mm -hmm. um, so that was the sort of crunch. So, I, obviously, I was dis I can remember being very dis elated and very disappointed, but I had a fantastic year with them. I learned a lot. Um, and it was rough. And it was also the year I got into the national papers. I was walking to the station to go to Lisbon to do some training. And I, all these people were rushing up to me. Have you seen? Have you seen? You're in the back of the national papers. What are you talking about? <laughs> um, and there I was. They'd taken a photo. It said something like hair like the Beatles and a swerve like Stanley Matthews. So I thought, <laughs> <laughs> very, very interesting. Yeah. I'll take uh, that, so yeah. I, from that point on, I was marked very heavily. And they used to call me the beef because they called British people beefs. So they used to pay, pay a lot of attention to me from then on. But it was it was quite an exciting year. It's a fantastic time for you then. But obviously, aside from the sport and the football particularly, you had to get good qualifications, didn't you? I mean, you were... Yes. Now, yeah. Yeah, so in that year, I was that I was playing for them, I was carrying on with, um, I, I got seven O-levels because my father promised me a motorbike if I passed them. That wasn't the only reason, but obviously. <laughs> um, and I was hoping to go on to do A-levels. And my main aim then, I knew that I had a chance of getting into Benfica given time if I could develop in Bolognese because Bolognese I didn't have time to look them up. They're not a very ambitious site, a club, really. They're always middle of the league, you know, up in the Premier. Um, but they do sell a lot of players on when they're young to Sporting Lisbon, Benfica and the Porto. So I thought that might be an avenue, given time. Um, and then it all went wrong because the school could not take me to A-levels. And my father decided I must go... A back to England to study. And back you came. <laughs> so, sorry? And back you came. And, and, and that worked came, out. Yeah, it's that all happened. Have, must have sorry? been difficult, but but equally, that took you into the realms eventually of Loughborough. Um, yes, because that was plan B, I suppose. Yeah, but a good place to be, though. Oh, yeah. I mean, I did. Um, I'll tell you why that happened, because a chap called Richard Higgs, became our sports master and he was he would have been four five years older than I was so we used to go out drinking after football and have, we had a club nearby at the school and uh, we had some good times after the bar and we used to play snooker and all that sort of thing I mean he wasn't that much older and he was always saying to me you're good enough to go to Loughborough you ought to go to Loughborough and all and he eventually and he used to make me train twice as hard anyway so he'd hold all the team back and tell them to finish off the training by going round. And then he'd give me 100 yards to make up and beat them all. So he pushed me really hard. And um, he got me interested in getting into Loughborough. And he said, you know, it's the top college for people in the world. Don't take a second. Don't go to St. Luke's or whatever. So it was Loughborough or nothing. Um, so... When I went to Wellingborough School, as a result of my headmaster in Portugal having worked there and telling me it was a brilliant football school, that's where I should go, I ended up in Wellingborough, North Hands, 
haven't a clue where it was at the time. And, <laughs> yeah. and was that the point when you then got to play for the uh, the the public schools combined team, Peter? Yes. At that point in your career. Yes, very quickly. I, I was there, and I got chosen. You know, I think it was against Cambridge University the first match, and I think we. I believe we won it. I'm not sure. It's a long time ago. Um, so, yes, I got picked for that through that season. Um, and again on the second year. And I was obviously in the first team. We had a, we had quite a good first team squad. So we played a lot of schools around London, Brentwood, Winchester, Eton, all that sort of thing. Won, won most of the matches. And of course, it was a very sport-orientated school, which suited me because um, we did sport every afternoon. Mm-hmm. So I was constantly training, doing athletics. So again, for health, it was great. So eventually you were PE in biology. Uh, when I was at teacher training college, you had to have a subsidiary subject, and mine, mine was history and PE. Uh, but that took you obviously into full-time teaching. Where was that first off? Well, that in itself is a funny one because I met Sarah in my final year at Loughborough, having said I'd never get married. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. About a week beforehand. Um, and uh, one, of the, one of the hall people, committee members, said to me, Pete, we haven't got any women, enough women coming to this party we're holding. And so I said, let's go and have a beer and think about it. And this chap suddenly realised he knew he had a contact at a girls' college in Northamptonshire. And she was waiting to meet her boyfriend who was coming back from Zambia. He was a geologist. And they persuaded her to come, a group of them to come in the van. And that's where I met her. Anyway, cut the story short. We got married in that year. And I suddenly realised, Christ, I'm taking my final exams in two months. I haven't got a job yet. Mm. So um, I applied for a job in Northamptonshire thinking I could play for the old Welling Burians, which were a team in the National League, our three-year league. So the old boys from the school. And it turned out that the headmaster answered, Dear Peter, which immediately surprised me because in those days it was sirs and Mr. And this Harry Johnson was, in fact, the president of the old Welling Buren Club, who refereed our first team matches, right. who I knew very well. And he said, the job's gone, but just turn up and we'll get, find you another one because you can come and play for us. <laughs> <laughs> so, so I ended up being interviewed in silence. <laughs> and they, he offered me um, a science post with PE. So I did coaching and gymnastics and that sort of thing. And he let me go and play it. I represented football whenever I was chosen. So I had a pretty good boss. And he certainly taught me how to discipline a class. He said, forget everything you know, you've you learned at Loughborough. Go in and give them hell. Don't try and be light because they'll eat you for breakfast. And I never forgot that. No. And controlling, controlling the class is kind of important. It was one of the big lessons I, I learned. You've got to have that. Yeah, a lot of teachers never 
never were taught that and never learnt it and had real problems and discipline in class. I think PE teachers, it's easier because yeah. you're used to controlling larger groups. But I do, I do agree. Control. Yeah. And uh, yeah, I never forgot that because I used it right through to further ed and so on. Yeah, they're, they're real life skills, those. Now, listen, if we jump in time to the point where we first met, which was we, we were involved with Forever, Andy was part of my team, and we heard of this professor, as you became known, Professor Wilkins. No, yeah, yeah. Uh, we, we added the mad professor into that, but anyway. <laughs> uh, <laughs> but, but you were doing these sports presentations, and as I understood it, or whether you were or not, we put ourselves forward and said, we're mad sports people we'd love to be part of this because we were all promoting the products the forever aloe vera products but equally these presentations were our own device they weren't the companies they were separate to that at that time and i think we did a really good job and we ended up going all around the country and and that was really at your instigation yeah but you were all absolutely brilliant and that's why i like the, the word 18 because that's how good you all were. And um, it was very successful and great fun as well. I mean, yeah, I, that... I used to love it. You know, I'd, mm -hmm. I was, I'd love sitting back and listening. <laughs> and, and likewise, I mean, I, I, said yeah. to, I remember saying to Tony at the time, I learned so much about different sports from some of the other speakers. And also remember saying to Tony, I mean, I, I couldn't give up biology and chemistry at school quick enough. Um, they just weren't things that I enjoyed. I remember saying to Tony at the time, I wish I'd had Peter teaching me teaching us, science yeah. at school because you made it accessible to people who maybe didn't have that background or knowledge. You took something that could be complex and made it very, very simple and very understandable. And I remember saying to Tony at the time, I've learned more here in these sessions with Peter than I ever <laughs> learned in three or four years of science lessons at school because I would switched off in those. Whereas I think because you were linking it with sport, which we were all interested in, it made sense. Well, that's lovely to hear because I used to obviously teach the sports sciences. And as you appreciate, a lot of sports people are fantastic at what they do, but they don't find maths and the kinesiology type of stuff very easy, any more than I did. And we used to simplify it right down and then build it up again. Yeah. So... Although you had all these complex equations to deal with, you could simplify it down into plain English, and then they'd go, ah, is that what it means? And I can, <laughs> I can remember doing exactly the same with somebody who did that with me as a student. So, yeah. you know, and that was the whole thing, keep it simple. Yeah, we, have, uh, we had a, a few months ago, at the start of Null and Void, we actually had Craig Gillies on, the big oh, did you? player. Yeah. And he was, he, he, I mean, it's a very interesting story, apart from the forever link, uh, of his his uh, career in rugby. So he described that to us. And he, he's a lovely bloke, as you know, but yeah. gentle giant, as we always used to say. But he, he was on, and that was nice to get a member of the team then. So the idea of what we're doing tonight was further brought forward because I've kept in contact, and Andy has, with Suzanne Turner. And Brilliant. guess what? Suzanne is with us tonight. Oh, how wonderful. So Great. part of the A-team is reconstituted here. 
Suzanne, welcome. And there's Professor, Mad Professor Peter Wilkinson. Say hello. Hello, Suzanne. Hello. Hiya. You again. <laughs> it has been a while. <laughs> Lovely to see you. This is fantastic. And you. Listen, dear listener, self-indulgence for a few minutes here because there's the four of us and we haven't actually seen and spoken to each other other than in social media terms for some time Probably but we seven had a or great eight years yeah seven or eight years and we had a great period of time where it was milton Keynes or it was bournemouth or wherever it was mm. off we went and we never thought any more about it but in doing that we learned about as as andy said so much about different sports and Suzanne, if I'm not mistaken, your background in the first place was very much into the show jumping area. But I knew you in those sports presentations as somebody who was into climbing. Was that right? Would you describe yourself that way? Um, well, I, I think I've kind of in some ways I've gone from horses climbing back to horses back to climbing with a few other things in between um so um yeah the time the forever time when when we were sort of doing all our presentations my focus was very much on the equestrian side of things and that was where peter had brought me in to to cover that equestrian side of things so very much the sort of the horse the horse um side um the climbing i hadn't sort of really climbed for quite a long time at that point actually i'd uh, probably i think since i left the military um, I had about a 13 year break from climbing mm-hmm. uh, up until about 2000. Very, started very, different, again. very different world to the, uh, you know, uh, the other side to, to you, you know, and I think the mixture of those things with, with uh, show jumping, the discipline contained within that, and obviously then the further discipline of climbing, you know, fantastic disciplines neither of which I know too much about, but you clearly were very skillful in those areas and it was great to learn from you as we went along. Mm. Thank you. Yeah, they were, uh, I mean, it's, they're sort of, um, I suppose, very different chapters of life and, some, you know, image of, 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 of what you think life is going to be like and then sometimes it just goes off on a completely different tangent and uh, you end up somewhere that you weren't really expecting. Yeah. Yeah, but you know. uh, and everything has got its its different lessons. Um, but yeah, the the everything that I sort of learned and and did through that period of time where we were kind of met and were doing all those presentations, you know, it opened up a lot of a lot of opportunities and um, for me. And and even though I I did uh, you know ended up moving away from the horses and everything again, there was over that period of my life, I just I learned a huge amount. Um, I think perhaps about about myself more than anything um, mm. in some ways, but uh, you mm-hmm. know that opportunity um, to present and to speak was something that I would never have even dreamed that I would do or be to uh, to really sort of step into that world. And actually, I I found I thoroughly enjoyed it. Um, but I, if you know, I think probably I seem to think when he asked me, I, there was that part of me that sort of didn't dare say no. <laughs> Well, it, has, just, it has that effect on you, yeah. <laughs> of the prospect of, of standing up in front of a room full of people, and which was odd because I was an instructor. I was also a riding instructor at the time, and I'd done a lot of instructing qualifications and things through my time in the military. But yeah. they are quite different to standing up and 
and sort of presenting information to a room full of people who are all, you know, looking at you and I think there were a number of our group who all said you know we we felt we developed that skill as part of that team and sort of learning hints and tips from other people I remember watching others you know within that group and thinking I like the way they get that point across so I'm I'm pinching that and as someone who's sort of spent his career since then in in a lot of training rooms and delivering stand-up training I, I can definitely see there's times when I think yeah I, I stole that from Peter I stole that from Suzanne now yeah. and again I might have stolen the odd thing from Tony but uh <laughs> <laughs> not, not very much not very much <laughs> the, the thing about the partnership thing because the null and void thing as you know Suzanne came from that we that's what we said the greatest double accents null and void was us two together and I because I I, I invented that name one the first time we were about to do the presentation, I think, up in Milton Keynes, and we're in the car park, and I said, I'll tell you what, when we go on today, we'll introduce ourselves as the greatest double accents, null and void, which made Andy laugh. And we've always, he was, Andy was in a team, and we got on very well always, and we would always could laugh about sometimes quite serious things. But that, that was what we wanted to bring into the presentations with a bit of fun, and that we both were mad about sport and here were some brilliant products that could help you. And I've, I found that really good to work with Andy. And it's one of the reasons we're back together. You know, I, I, I contacted him a while ago, six months or more ago and said, I've got this idea. Do you want to be part of it? And I just spelt it out to him initially in an email. And when we made contact, I said, what do you think? He said, I'm in, we'll do yep, it. Count me in, we'll do it. Yeah. And here, here we are 24 episodes later. Uh, and, yeah. and nobody's told us to stop yet. So we, 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 we keep going. We keep going. Now, Susanna, I, I, in the show jumping thing, one of the yeah. things I no, noted that you said uh, uh, was that in 2012, you had a, a breakdown. You actually talked about emotions around that and, and severe clinical depression. Was that brought on after the military and army background what were the triggers to that I've never really talked to you about that before you might not want to talk no, about it, it was actually, um I think the the main trigger with that was that um I left I'd left the army in 2005 and I'd set up my equestrian business and then of course in 2008 the recession hit and um and it hit the horse industry in a in a big big way um and it just was the sort of culmination of um, really sort of, I suppose, fighting to kind of keep a, my, my business afloat. Uh, there was all sorts of things, but a lot of it was financial stress and um, all sort of things that, that contributed to it. Um, and and eventually it just sort of over, overflowed and, you know, say I, I sort of had a, had a breakdown and, and was diagnosed with with. Um, severe clinical depression and for quite a long time I, I was um on the brink of suicidal um I certainly could not see a reason why to carry on I, I really didn't want this sort of this stress that I was under to to keep going I just sort of wanted it to stop um but um it actually was nothing to do with uh, with the military although funny enough it was um, it was it was working alongside forever in a way that introduced me to this sort of idea of self development um, and, uh, and and mindset 
And I mm. knew nothing about any of that at the time, but obviously it was a big part of that um, um, of that of that ethos. Um, and and the more I learned about that sort of side of things and and how the brain works and that sort of thing, the more interested I got in it. The more I looked back over my life and I realised that actually this sort of you know um, sort of uh, I guess that the depression side of actually had actually been with me since I was a child. So I'd gone right through probably I don't know two thirds of my life at that point dealing with a mental health illness that I didn't know I had. Mm-hmm. Um, and when you kind of look back on things and you look back at the way that, you know, almost like patterns of behavior and that sort of thing, um, it, it really kind of made me, me look at right back sort of through my life and, and sort of suddenly starting to recognize why perhaps I'd reacted to things the way I had. And, um, and it just, you know, it got to a point where I, it just sort of, I guess I, I reached the edge. Um, and then, you know, they, they, they do say when you hit rock bottom, then there's only one way you can go and that's back up again. Um, and it's sort of, I suppose that's where I, I made the choice that actually, no, I didn't, I didn't want it to just finish there. Um, and I, there's a lot of things that contribute to that. And I still, to this day, I still have struggles with it. Um, but I am exceedingly grateful that I didn't act on certain wishes at the time. Yeah, well, and, you, and you mentioned in our uh, when you were sort of giving us some notes before this evening's uh, podcast, Suzanne, that you know climbing has really helped you with that in terms of sort of you know you dealing with and managing your your mental health. What is it about the climbing that helps so much? Um, I think that there's kind of two elements on on it for me. I think I've always been very much the outdoors person um you know throughout my childhood with horses and then through my army career and everything um I'm not very good at sort of sitting in an office and being desk bound and that sort of thing so the great outdoors has always been the place where I'm happiest um and I certainly find that you know when I'm in any kind of mountainous range whether it's in the UK or anywhere sort of in the world I just I don't know. I, there is something about it. I always find if I'm going, let's say if I'm driving to North Wales or something, the minute that the mountains start to come into my windscreen vision, I just start to smile and I can't help it. I just think, you know, there's just something about the mountains that just makes me feel very happy. Um, I think I, you know, I sort of find a, um, a sort of a, a peace in solitude. I love going to the mountains on my own um, and just getting that sort of, the, I find it, it sort of recharges me, just, just going and just being out in the wilderness, just wandering about the mountains some way, you know. Um, so it's not always about climbing as such, because quite often it's more kind of walking, hiking sort of thing. It's just being outside in mountains. There's something very humbling I think about being in the mountains which kind of almost makes me think you know really me and and my kind of life was a very small speck compared to these these you know huge majestic mountain ranges that you kind of everything gets a little bit put into perspective a bit. Um, I I can definitely associate with that I mean I've had a a t-shirt that my family bought me for years it it just about still fits now and on it it says um better a rainy day in the mountains than a sunny day in the office and I think you know with that I think you know I can definitely associate with that feeling of just 
yeah, freedom, but also, yeah, I, I'm I'm not quite as big as these blooming great hills are. And there's something about that that's a bit that, as you say, gives you a bit of perspective. Yeah. And, and certainly with climbing as a as a sport, um, from a from the physical point of view, it's a fantastic sport because it really is, it's all around it does everything it's you know you a lot of people that when they come to the climbing center that i manage now you know a lot of people they say oh i i haven't got much upper body strength it's like well that's not actually really what the main thing is it's uh, it's people are often surprised at how um out of breath they get how much of a sort of cardio workout it is as well because um mm. you know it, it's a really great all-round physical fitness but from a mental point of view I find that you have you have to be in the moment when you're climbing. You have to be focusing on the route that you're doing, the moves you're doing, whether it's on an indoor wall or whether it's outdoors. Obviously, outdoors is even better than indoors, but um, but it, you know it can can equally be indoors. And and you 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 can put everything else to one side and just totally focus on what you're doing. Just leave everything else behind. And you usually find that if you don't do that, that's when you fall off. So. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's that's a decent decent thing to keep. So, in, in bringing us forward, Suzanne, because you 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 haven't mentioned many of the big expeditions you went on and so on, but they're, they're amazing in themselves. But you've developed that now, the climbing side, into well, tell us where you are now. You're about to open a new centre, aren't you? And you're a manager there. Um. Yeah, I I started teaching in my local in eighteen, um, and then last year, uh, just as the country went into lockdown, it actually went under new management. So we obviously we were then instantly closed, um, and when it reopened under the the new management company, um, it needed a new manager. So uh, I applied for the for the role and got given that. So uh, so yeah, since November last year, I've I've been managing the centre as is now. Um, and we are opening a new leisure centre, which also has a, a bigger climbing centre within it and a clip and climb. So this has been, I mean, talk about learning curve. This has definitely been a huge one because I, I don't really, you know, even just going into the role of managing a climbing centre was a pretty big step. But also now sort of opening a brand new centre, yeah. um, it, it's been great fun and we're really looking forward to getting the new centre open and being able to get more people climbing, hopefully. What, what is your view, uh, Suzanne, of what we saw in the Olympics, which was, is it called speed climbing or sport climbing? What's what's the difference? Um, so the, the three disciplines that we saw in the Olympics for the first time was the speed climbing, the bouldering and the lead climbing. Um, the speed climbing is just bonkers. Uh, you know, they, they're just it's. And the thing with, with speed climbing is that 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 route that wall that they're doing is always the same it's always the same route um and so these these professional com competition climbers you know they've been doing that route over and over and over and over and over again for about the last 10 years um and so no matter where in the world the speed competition is it's always that same route it's a little bit like a hundred meters track yeah. is a hundred meters track it might be in a different arena but it's still a one meter track um, and so that is what allows them to have things like a world record. It's the same, they're doing the same, the same route, but it's absolutely bonkers to think, you know, that a human can get from the, the bottom to the top in a matter of five or six seconds. Um, uh, and then they have the bouldering element, the, 
lower walls, but no ropes, no harnesses involved. Um, and they're very much, um, we call them boulder problems because, you know, they are like a puzzle to solve, trying to find the way to get from the bottom um, points along the way. Um, and then you have the lead climbing, which is the, the big, the big overhanging walls with uh, where they're, you know, they're protecting themselves with a rope and, uh, and, the, and the, the route just gets progressively harder and harder and harder. And it's the person that gets the furthest without falling off who uh, gets the most points. So it was really interesting to see that come into the Olympics. Very kind of nobody really knew how it would be received. I think in this one they did. They lumped all three disciplines in together. Um, to just give one overall winner, which is a little bit like, um, you know, I don't know, I suppose a bit like telling a sprinter that they also then have to run the 10,000 metres or do the steeplechase as well. Yeah. You know, they yeah. are actually very different disciplines and, mm. and professional climbers will specialise in different ones. So I think there may be some changes. I don't know, obviously it's not a process I'm involved in, but I think that they'll then perhaps tweak things slightly or the person that knows nothing about climbing and in terms of the coverage that that got in the olympics suzanne have you seen i guess still with covid restrictions it might not have yet really hit but have you seen a big interest or a greater interest in people getting in touch saying we want to know more about climbing how do we get into this off the back of that olympic coverage um yeah i think it has had a very good impact um we certainly have seen our um, a, an increase in, in the number of people wanting to learn climbing, particularly um, the children from that side. Um, our sort of we the spaces that we had available in our kids' classes, they just suddenly went <laughs> within about two weeks of the of the Olympics. It was like the phone didn't stop ringing, and um, we had you know we've we've now got a huge waiting list of about ninety kids waiting for spaces on on classes. So. Whether that was directly as a result of them having watched the Olympics, but we certainly have got quite a lot of kids that have been thoroughly inspired by by seeing climbing in the Olympics. Um, so, yeah, I think it has had a really positive impact. Um, and hopefully that will continue as uh, as it as it grows into a more of a well-known Olympic sport. Now, listen, Suzanne, if anybody's listening to this and they might be geographically in that area, we never know, but, but um, and they wanted to get in contact with you to learn more. How should they best get in contact with you? Um, well, the new centre is called the Chilton Lifestyle Centre, um, based in Amersham, Amersham in Buckinghamshire. Yeah. Um, it's uh, it's managed by a company called Everyone Active, uh, who are one of the biggest um, leisure centre management companies in the UK. Um, so, uh, you know, a great way to, to find out more would be, be really just to go onto the everyoneactive.com website um, and then just do a search for Chilton Lifestyle Centre and that will bring up more information about what's available um, in the centre as a whole, not just not just for climbing. So that's probably the best way because um, I think that the new website is now live. Um, we've got another three weeks until we actually are going to be looking to open. So it's probably the best way is via the website they can send an inquiry in um, and market for the climbing department and that will come through to me that would be really nice to think we could help in it anyway but you've you've made the cause and expressed it really well tonight for us in all sorts of different ways Suzanne and lovely to have you back again and and indeed 
Peter to to reinvigorate the A team element or a part mm. of it anyway. It's been really nice <laughs> to do that. And Null and Void hopefully has played a part in making that possible. We'll send you the links, both of you, to this so you can spread that out to your family to further the cause. You know, um, your, your climbing family, Suzanne and, and Peter, any of your contacts, because the more people that know about these kind of things, the better. And I think we've all learned a lot, again, from each other, as we did on those mm. 18 presentations. Really, thank you very much, both of you, for being with us. Andy? Yeah, thank you both. And great to, great to see you both, you know, still so keen and eager about sports as we were all those many, many moons ago, uh, you know, back when we were doing the presentations. So great to see you both well and healthy and, yeah, enjoying the enjoying the sports that we, are, that we all love so much. So thank you for, for joining us this week. And thank you. Me. Good to see you all again. Yeah. Take care. Cheers, Cheers folks. We'll, we'll go towards the end of the programme now, but thank you for joining us. Cheers to both of you. Bye. And to you. Thanks, both. Take care. Wasn't, wasn't that brilliant? I need to have them both there again. I really enjoyed that. Really Absolutely fantastic. Yeah, great to reconnect after so long and, uh, yeah, to hear the, the stories that both Peter and Suzanne have got. Very, very different backgrounds, but it just shows that it's, sport is something that people can enjoy from a variety of different backgrounds and different approaches. Yeah, lovely. Yeah. OK, well, as we always say at this point, you know, that if you want to comment on what you've heard tonight, on any aspect of it, you want to comment, please do. And the contact details will come up at the end of the podcast. Uh, and we hope you'll be with us at the same time, your place of your choice, because that's how podcasts best work. And we look forward to being with you then. Andy? Yeah. And just on a couple of things that we've been running recently, folks, again, if anyone has any more suggestions for uh, Barry Wood, our great guest last week on who could play Wayne Rooney in the film of The Great Escape, then please do get in touch. I think we've had... Gordon Ramsay, Charlton Heston, Quasimodo and Shrek as our four <laughs> suggestions so far. So if anyone can beat those, please do get in touch. And likewise, the segment that we uh, launched last week and will be running on a regular basis, we're hoping to have one next week with us, is the local heroes section. So if you know of any local heroes who are those really unsung heroes at a grassroots level of sports, sports clubs, sports teams that you know of that would enjoy speaking with us and telling us about the different club that they support then please do get in touch and let us know and again the email details and all the contact details as usual will be uh, read out at the end okay excellent look forward to seeing you all next week thanks very much see you later thanks a lot folks take care null and void with tony grundy and andy callahan together they don't add up to much if you have a sports story, you can contact the team on n and v at forthenow.co.uk.